Welcome to Sleepy Time Travels. After weeks of hearing how to manifest your desires, let's adjust your dreamscape to the chronicle of a most beautiful desire come true. We only turn the Wayback Dial to 1989 in the Bahamas. But it is nevertheless a different world. I can attest that the Bahamas are still magical when sailed to and lived in on a sailboat. But the place young Dave Bricker experienced aboard his little sloop, the Blue Monk, was a different epic and a magnitude of magical greater. Here's a boy that had a dream and made it come true and then shared it eloquently with us. My name is Russell Stamets. Some people like to fall asleep to the audiobooks I narrate. The topics of the books I choose to narrate and produce range from folk tales to tales of murder, Eastern mysticism, or personal memoirs like The Blue Monk. If you'd like to hear more of the books I sample on the podcast or check out the rest of my catalog, search Russell Stamets on Audible or iTunes. I'll include links to the audiobooks and the Kindle and print editions in the episode description. If this is something you enjoy listening to, besides buying the books, you can support me by rating the podcast, following, or subscribing. Now, it's time to get comfortable, settle back, relax, and listen. My cousin Dan and I spend a night and the following day at Little Harbor. Here, the chain of out islands and the shallow sea of Abaco end. Beyond this protected harbor, the coast of Great Abaco Key turns southward into northeast Providence Channel, an incursion of the deep North Atlantic that divides the Bahamas' two major banks. We leave before sundown, bound 90 miles south to Nassau, New Providence Island passing between two arms of coral reef into rolling offshore swells. The wind is light and easterly, an easy broad reach. After sunset, the flashing beacon high on the rocks at Hole in the Wall on the southeast point of Great Abaco provides a handy bearing point from which to gauge our progress south through the darkness. Out in the big ocean waves, Dan is queasy. I've done little offshore sailing before, apart from crossing the Gulf Stream to get to these islands. But tonight, I feel fine. I'm in charge of getting my boat and my cousin safely from Abaco to Nassau. There's no sea daddy aboard this time. Debilitating seasickness is not an option. Who am I, some 24-year-old kid, to be piloting a small boat on a moonless night, beyond sight of land? With a passenger who knows nothing about sailing? We pass within a hundred feet of a northbound sailboat. I illuminate my sails with a searchlight to make sure they see me. The tossing motion of the other vessel's masthead light relative to ours reveals the size of the seas as we fly comfortably southward. But Blue Monk, in spite of her small size, is perfectly content out here in the ocean swells. We wave at one another before each vessel disappears into the black void astern of the other. How are you holding up, Dan? I ask. I've felt better, but I'll be okay, he tells me. 
he forces a weak smile and nibbles a soda cracker to calm his stomach. The wind freshens. I turn Blue Monk into the wind. Dan takes the helm while I go on deck with a safety harness to tuck a reef in the mainsail. Dawn. The sea changes from black to gray to deepest blue. New Providence Island rises gradually above the wave tops. An immense cruise ship enters the harbor ahead of us. The thought of sharing a channel with a vessel that size is intimidating. But now I know where the entrance is. At eight o'clock in the morning, Blue Monk rounds the breakwater into NASA's busy industrial harbor. A police boat cruises around the entrance, its blue strobe light flashing. Passing the cruise ship docks, we make our way east through the busy port, toward the arch of Potter's Key Bridge. Over here is where the resorts and casinos are, I explained to Dan, gesturing at Paradise Island moving slowly by to port. Paradise Island was originally named Hog Key, probably a less-than-ideal name for marketing a vacation spot. Dan chuckles. He's already feeling better now that we're out of the swells and inside the sheltered harbor. Anchorages in Nassau Harbor consist of small groups of boats tucked in along the sides of a wide channel, protected from ocean swells by the lee of the islands, but exposed to the constant wakes of passing powerboats, the booming base of tourist barges dressed up in loosely piratical style, and a tide that rips one way or the other through the channel four times a day. A wooden fishing smack tacks up the harbor against wind and current, its main boom fashioned from a crooked tree branch. I'm sorry we didn't get here in time to watch her navigate under the Paradise Island Bridge without an engine, but I'm grateful to get a glimpse of what this historic harbor looked like decades before. The voices of the dark fishermen working the lines on the ghost sloop are swallowed by the din of NASA's commerce and development. Zebra Dunn lies at anchor not far from the bridge on the north side of the harbor. John and Veronica wave from her deck. I anchor, row Dan over, and make introductions. Though I've been at the helm all night, I elect to accompany everyone to shore. Better, I think, to forego a nap and force myself to return to a normal sleeping cycle. My visit to Nassau is a blur of fatigue. Dan and I hike around town. We buy supplies. I purchase a new spear at a dive shop and some new music to listen to. I encounter a breadfruit tree and pick one of the strange cannonball-sized fruits. Street merchants charge me white man's prices for vegetables and conch at the straw market under the big bridge. A steel drum plays for the tourists through a tinny amplifier. Coconuts, papayas, and fresh fish abound. The sad, legless, clawless bodies of live land crabs sit stacked in crates waiting to be sold. I never knew they were edible. Someone blows an impossibly long note on a conch shell trumpet. Cruise ship visitors cheer and offer tips. After a few hours, I've been offered all the T-shirts I care to be offered. Enough of Paradise's hot dog stand. We return home and tie a bucket behind the dinghy so the current can grab it, preventing the tender from beating into the hull of Blue Monk when the wind and tide pull the two vessels in opposite directions. John and Vero sail off the following day at first light. She has a plane to meet in Georgetown in two weeks. Dan and I need another day of rest after our 90-mile offshore passage. 
we wait until the following morning to head south to the Exuma Keys. At dawn, as I fire up the engine and haul up my anchors, a familiar voice sings, Ahoy, Blue Monk! Two boats from Dinner Key Anchorage circle around me. Keith is here on Ritmo. Charlie is sailing his tiny blue sloop with no name. We're all headed south across the yellow banks. Our impromptu flotilla motors east under the bridge, past the rusting wreck of an old freighter adjacent to the southwest channel. A single-engine seaplane takes off in the harbor, just before passing beneath Paradise Island Bridge. I look at Dan and laugh. Try a stunt like that in the States and you'll never fly again. Dan chuckles along with me. He's from Colorado. He knows Old West when he sees it. Blue Monk slowly leaves New Providence Island behind. The clanking of civilization fades upon our return to the clear, tranquil shallows of the Bahama Banks. Hopefully, I tell Dan, the wind will fill in as the sun gets higher, so I can shut down this noisy motor. The Exuma Keys lie forty miles southeast across the Yellow Banks, a day's sail. The guidebook advises us to be vigilant and steer clear of coral heads, but we don't see any particularly large ones. The shallow water is clear and blue again. The bottom rolls lazily beneath us. The wind, already light, diminishes to an occasional puff. Sand, sponges, corals, and grass patches meander by ever more slowly. Well before the tops of the Exuma Islands peek over the horizon, the wind dies altogether. The sails hang limp. The engine drones. The sky is hazy and white. We take down our clattering sails and motor across a sea of glass. Dan spots an object in the distance. A sailboat motoring through the white zone where the sea blends with the sky, skating above its own rippling reflection, trailing a long, thin ribbon of wake. Sailing across an endless field of tidal currents, navigating with compasses and watches, it's hard to tell which island is which by the shapes that appear on the horizon. Other sailors have electronic navigation equipment much more sophisticated than ours. Maybe this boat can give us an accurate position? Our courses converge. Dan recognizes John and Veronica on Zebra Dun before I do. Five miles west of the northern Exumas, we idle our engines and enjoy a gam on the Bahama Banks. Looks like some weather's coming down, says John as he waves his hand across this streaky sky. We just left Allen's Key. We're heading south to Norman's Key for better protection. Allen's is a beautiful place, but nowhere I want to be in a gale. The fleet presses on together. After a few more hours of motoring, Blue Monk slips around the south side of Norman's Key to anchor in eight feet of clear water, fifty feet from an old dock. The sun descends. All hands are tired from the journey. We tie obligatory buckets to the sterns of our dinghies, a practice that becomes standard in this land of fast-moving tidal currents, and retire beneath a shower of stars. The anticipated cold front blows through. Though not as severe as the gale at Foot's Key, gusty winds cause our boats to strain at their anchor lines. When the wind is at odds with the tidal currents, Blue Monk rolls awkwardly. I'm grateful for the protection of the island's lee. It must be rough out on the banks. Norman's Key is the site of a former hotel and resort that became a haven for drug smugglers until the Bahamian Defense Force shot it 
and I assume the smugglers, full of holes. A ditched DC-3 cargo plane sits largely exposed at low tide on a shoal in the center of the harbor. Bent propellers describe its final landing on the soft seagrass. We snorkel around coral-encrusted engines and landing gear, hunting for fish. In the cockpit of the wrecked plane, I mug for a photo. Dan strikes a surfer's pose atop the fuselage. We remain at Norman's Key for four days while the wind continues to blow. Beyond a dilapidated dock, weathered steps lead up a hill to an old hotel. I lift a trap door in the porch and discover a cistern full of sweet rainwater beneath it. Treasure. Nassau water tastes like a waste product from a frog breeding program. I filled a few jugs with the ghastly stuff as a precaution before leaving New Providence, but opted to sail south with my main tank almost empty, in hope of finding anything better. After discovering the cistern, I pump my Nassau water into the sea with apologies to the fish, and top off my tanks with the good stuff. Hauling jugs down the stairs, across the dock, and out to the boat is hard work. When we're finished, as a reward for our efforts, we lower our bucket on a rope through the hole in the porch once more to enjoy a freshwater shower and shampoo. The wind clocks around to the east and continues to blow hard, but the sky is clear. The days are beautiful. At slack tide, we prowl the harbor for conch, climb and dive on the wreck of the airplane, row over to the tiny islets adjacent to Norman's Key, and, in the evenings, sit on deck playing music and telling sea stories. I snap a photograph of John and Vero. They are two comic book heroes, standing next to a palm tree on a postcard-perfect tropical island. The wind blows Vero's hair and skirt. John smiles with his bronze chest bared to the sun. They glow with strength, power, and vitality. The winter wind continues unabated. I have to get Dan back to Nassau, I explained to John. His plane leaves the day after tomorrow. I have the same problem, he responds. I need to deliver Vero to Georgetown to catch her plane. I'm running out of days myself. We have to get out of here. Keith and Charlie are going to accompany me south in the morning. I don't mind admitting I'm scared to head back to Nassau with the wind howling like this, I confessed to John. It must be rough out there. He thinks silently for a moment and looks at me paternally. I hate to throw a cliché at you, but if you weren't scared, I'd be worried about you. At dawn, our four boats round the southern tip of Norman's Key out into the waves and wind. My three companions head south. I head northwest. It will be a long time and many miles before I see any of them again. On the way back to Nassau, the wind is behind us all the way. A rowdy downhill run. Our course is true. The trees of New Providence rise in the horizon before us, just where they're supposed to. Blue Monk shoots beneath the bridge under wind power to drop anchor off the NASA police station at sundown, exactly where we were moored a week before. The next morning, I hail a taxi on the VHF. Cousin Dan returns to the Rocky Mountains. I linger a few days in Nassau to meet up with some of the teachers from the Abaco Mission, who fly down to join friends on a holiday. For the weekend, it's me and five beautiful young women knocking around Nassau town, exploring Fort Charlotte, and swimming off the beach on the ocean side of Paradise Island. 
A conch boat anchors close to Blue Monk. It's just an old fiberglass powerboat. Once somebody's dream, she's now an ugly hulk loaded high with seaweed-covered shells. Downwind of it, the stench is overpowering. The fishermen must have seen me rowing with my entourage. Hey, Mon, set me up, they call as I row by. They all flew home, I explain. Sorry, maybe next time. I'm grateful to have been spared an uncomfortable diplomatic exercise by the lady's departure, but it's not like I got set up either. I'm a freak who lives alone on a tiny sailboat. They're all going home to jobs, boyfriends, and grad school. I breathe and sigh. Loneliness is the cost of living, suggests my inner voice. Time to get on with my journey. I bake whole grain bread in my oven the night before departing. I have no autopilot. Keeping good bread aboard makes it easy to prepare and consume midday sandwiches without abandoning the helm. In the morning, I quietly extract my anchors from the Nassau Harbor mud, motor under the Paradise Island Bridge, and aim my bow southeast toward the Exuma Keys. The breeze is moderate, just right. I turn off the engine, adjust my compass course, and trim my sails. Who am I, some twenty-four-year-old kid, to be piloting a small boat alone, beyond sight of land, across the Bahama Banks? I don't know. I just am. October, 1988 In the dinner key anchorage, Mike, a stocky, white-haired man with a stern brow, anchors next to me for several months, flying Canadian colors over Peapod, his home-built steel boat. We pass each other often enough to become friendly. Peapod is cleverly put together. Mike tells me with a smile that her mast is actually a salvaged aluminum telephone pole. I know my way around, so I help him find what he needs in Miami. When he's ready to sail on, he invites me over to thank me for being a good neighbor. To my surprise, his wife Betty is with him. I have never seen her aboard. I like living on the boat, she explains, but I don't like it when the wind blows and the rigging starts rattling. I'm happier when it's calm, when we're at anchor and the boat isn't heeling over. Having come down the intracoastal waterway from Montreal to make final preparations in Miami, Mike gets Peapod ready to leave for the Bahamas as soon as the weather is right for a Gulfstream crossing. We'll be staying at Dove Key in the Exumas, he tells me. It's a private island. We'll be the caretakers. Stop by for a visit if you get down that far south. November, 1989. Winter is a time to watch the sky for telltale signs of cold fronts racing down from Arctic latitudes. A time to stay close to sheltered harbors. But I've crossed these yellow banks twice already, once in rough weather. I'll shoot down from Nassau and then island hop south, though I'm not sure how far I'll go or where I'll end up. I make Georgetown and the southern Exumas my goal. It's one of the places Trimer and John always talked about. The Exuma Keys are of a different character than the comparatively lush Abaco chain to the north, where a large main island and a chain of out islands define the boundaries of a protected bay. These islands are a battleground where ocean and land fight for dominion. Though the waters are clear and colorful and vibrant, bleakness lives here too. 
Gone are the pine forests and hardwood hammocks. The Exumas are rugged and desolate, an intimidating landscape both exotic and remote, where thin scrub vegetation clings to tortured rock formations. Twice daily the tide pulls unfathomable quantities of water on and off these banks. With no large mainland to moderate the current, the islands take the brunt of shifting tides. The cuts between them are subject to fast-moving currents and wandering shoals. It's prudent to traverse them when the tide is slack. Allen's Key is the northernmost anchorage in this chain of islands that stretches southward from a point 42 miles southeast of Nassau to a latitude just south of Havana. Uninhabited except by species of Bahamian marine iguana, Allen's Key is actually a cluster of small islands that encircle the white sand bottom of a pristine lagoon. Over millennia, tidal currents have carved a deeper ring of blue around the shallower middle. The southernmost islet, U-shaped, with a small beach inside its curve, marks the end of this gorgeous, otherworldly anchorage. Colors are super-saturated. The sand bottom provides good holding ground. I row to the beach. Three iguanas crawl from the foliage to greet me. I neglected to bring an offering, so I'm grateful to read in the guide that they're vegetarians. Back aboard Blue Monk, I prepare a simple evening meal, chopped vegetables and rice. But I enjoy my hot supper way out here, so far away from everything and everyone. I light the kerosene lamp that illuminates my cabin and look over my chart to plan tomorrow's route. Dove Key appears beneath my finger. I remember Mike's invitation. The tiny island is right on my way and slightly off the path more frequently taken by yachtsmen. A perfect next stop. After a half day's easy sail, I drop a hook in the seagrass next to Peapod with her waving maple leaf ensign. On shore, a charming Bahamian cottage stands behind a wooden dock among palm trees and mangroves. Mike is pleased to see me. He invites me to stay a few days and introduces me to his son, Roy, an amiable, dark-haired man in his late twenties. I enjoy meals with them, catch up on old times, and attend to chores on the boat. Roy helps me work on my outboard motor. Most likely some piece of dirt is clogging the fuel system and causing it to run rough. We accidentally drop the engine overboard while taking it off its mount. So after diving down to retrieve it, we end up having to tear it apart anyway to clear out the seawater. I scrub three weeks' worth of dirty laundry in a big galvanized tub with a washboard and sweet rainwater from the cistern under the house. Hermit crabs scatter as I walk the beach, followed by two playful dogs. I string my hammock between two coconut palms and relax with a book and a pillow. Mike shares news of misfortune. Betty took her own life a few months before my visit. He motions solemnly to a far corner of the island where she is buried in a secluded spot. The water clears. When we were in Miami, months passed before I even knew she was aboard. When I finally met her, she spoke only of fear. Fear of the sound of anchor chains rattling. Fear of the boat heeling over under sail. Betty hid in the small floating shelter her husband built away from noise and disturbance. And still she was afraid. Mike carried her to this quiet and peaceful island, 
to a sanctuary where nothing threatened, where she could walk in the sunshine along a white beach shaded by coconut palms, listening to the chuckling of the waves, to a place where she could free her spirit from fear. But we carry our demons with us. Behind her reflection in these peaceful waters, Betty saw only sharks, stinging jellyfish, and spiny, poisonous things. Having left the loud noises, bright lights, and angry people behind, she heard only imagined vitriol whispered by a cruel sea, carried on an ill wind, and distorted by a troubled spirit. With nowhere else to run to quiet the howling torment, she fled in the last way she could. Her body lies under the palms beneath a mound of coral rock and conch shells, consigned to this tranquil place. Perhaps her spirit could now celebrate freedom from fear and embrace a world of serenity and peace. There could be no more beautiful heaven. Clamped securely to its mount on my transom, the outboard runs better. Not perfect, but better. Good company and land underfoot have been restorative. The sand and coconut palms and crystal blue water are sublime. But Dove Key is only a stopping point, a temporary destination, a place to absorb the shock of the last passage, regain balance, and prepare for another leg of a longer journey. The morning is cool. The wind is fair. The sea beckons. I lash my oars to the cabin top, haul the mainsail aloft, and stow my sail covers. Anchors release their grip on sand and seagrass. I secure them on the bow. Past the tip of the island, the wind increases. Blue Monk heals and accelerates. I ease the main sheet to take pressure off the helm. Sailing alone into the unknown, across shallow waters hiding corals and currents, I too am afraid. It is the price I pay to feel alive. Twenty years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things that you didn't do than by the ones you did. So, throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sails, explore, dream, discover. Mark Twain I sail on for another day with a stiff easterly wind on my beam, dancing across an abstract quilt of blue and teal to Staniel Key, hoping to catch up with the zebra dun at Georgetown and Great Exuma, a hundred miles to the south. This breeze is excellent for making headway south, but to enter Staniel Key Harbor, I must turn my bow into the tide and wind. My sputtering outboard still hasn't quite recovered from being submerged, first at Foots Key and again at Little Dove Key, and I don't trust engines under the best of circumstances. The cruising guide advises me to land here with caution. The shoals are treacherous. I've had too perfect a sailing day to ruin it by running aground. I opt out of fighting my way into the harbor and turn about to anchor in the lee of Big Major's spot, an adjacent island offering comfortable shelter from the wind. I'll wait here for the easterly to subside. Confident my anchors are well set, I head to shore in the dinghy rowing hard against the current to find a phone and buy supplies. Somewhere along my journey, I lost an oar. My spare is not quite as long as its predecessor, 
I hobble in slowly, pulling harder and faster with my shorter oar to keep my bow on a straight course into the rushing tide. Close to the harbor lies Thunderball Cave, used as a set in the 1965 James Bond movie. The cavern appeared large enough on film to serve as a secret lair for the movie's villains. Hardly more than a coral arch, the actual cave is too small to accommodate my dinghy. I tie Artemisia to the town dock and walk through the settlement to find a phone station. Staniel Key's dwellings vary in style. Most are simple wooden structures painted in island hues, but a few real cinder block houses stand among them with satellite dishes, air conditioners, landscaped yards, and plate glass windows. In a tiny grocery store, I restock on flour and other basics. I telephone my mother from the local Batelco station to let her know I'm still alive. My errand's complete. I stroll back toward the dinghy dock. An American family hastily throws bags and suitcases into the bed of a pickup truck. They're preparing to depart via Staniel Key's airstrip. I offer a friendly hello and smile as I walk by. A girl about my age stops me. Dressed for travel, she's clearly bound toward civilization, not the beach. Are you the guy on the little blue sailboat out by the island? In the flesh. By yourself? Yes. And because I suspect she's looking for more than a simple confirmation, I add, it was time to go sailing. Everyone else was busy doing other things. If I'd waited for them, I wouldn't be here. I really admire that, she returns. I'm Lauren. My sister should meet you. Meeting Lauren or her sister or anybody else's sister sounded fine by me. There was much to be said for the shared experience. Having left all the too busy people behind, I'm alone on a grand adventure in an exquisitely magical and beautiful place. The only thing this movie is missing is romance. I'd love to meet your sister. I'd love to watch the glow of amazement in her eyes as we sail at night across a moonlit sea to show her my secret beaches where a person can walk for miles without seeing another soul. We'll climb the rickety stairs of the old lighthouse at Little Harbor to gaze at the mighty blue Atlantic through the window while the surf thunders below. Jump up on my shoulders. We'll pick that big ripe papaya hanging just out of reach. We'll steal lobsters from under the ledges on the reefs, swim among dark schools of mohara, brilliant yellowtail and shimmering jacks. Dine with me on conch and homemade bread from my oven. Let the yellow lantern light illuminate. Lauren calls for Kim, who emerges from a nearby doorway with a bag slung over her shoulder. This is the guy from the little blue boat out by the far island, she explains. He's out here all by himself. Dave, I offer, extending my hand to the two young women. Kim is thin, perhaps a little too thin. Despite having been on vacation, her eyes betray fatigue, but an obvious beauty and spark of intelligence glimmer behind them. Dark hair frames a charming, asymmetrical smile. I really admire what you're doing, she says. I work this terrible, terrible job. I'm running on a treadmill, and I can't get off. I don't know how. I don't know what to do. I wish I could just get away like you. Behind her, the rest of her family finishes putting their luggage on the truck. 
They perform a final check to see if anything important was left in the rental cottage. Our meeting is quickly drawing to a close. I'm seized by an almost overpowering urge to say, hop in the dinghy, let's go. But I know she'll either jump on board and traumatize her family, or fly home and feel terrible about the missed opportunity for the rest of her life. A trip together could make a wonderful story. Or it could be truly unpleasant sharing life on a tiny boat in the wilderness with a disoriented stranger. Aren't you scared out there by yourself? she asks. I'm no hero, I say, still reeling from the unexpected feelings triggered by this simple encounter. I'm just doing what I need to do to continue to like who I am. I get scared and lonely like everyone else. I have the same needs and desires. But why not ask yourself what you really want and go after it? You'll be terrified and uncomfortable at times, but at least you'll be honest. You can't eat goals and aspirations, but you can live pretty well on them. I recall a night, not so very long ago, in the swells of the Gulf Stream, when I was afraid of finally having the dream I'd wanted for so long. In the Abacos, I was afraid to acknowledge the strange coincidences and magic all around me, until they overwhelmed me and forced me to surrender control to accept my own inability to explain or understand that which clearly existed, but made no sense. I was afraid the gale at Foot's Key would take my little boat and break her on the rocks. Sailing south from Abaco to Nassau over five-mile deep water, I imagined sinking through a cold sea of blackness. Today, I'm afraid I'll always be alone in paradise. But there are worse things than being afraid. I remember the little mound of coral rocks on Dove Key. I am afraid every day of my life, but I use my fear to propel me through a world where I have come to trust my body, my skills, my instincts, and intuition. I don't believe you're scared of anything, Kim says. Want to hear something really scary, I ask? Think of dying without ever having lived. Think of being miserable your whole life and believing all the while you don't have the right to be unhappy because you did everything you were told to do to find happiness. Think of throwing your life away because of a crazy world's empty promises. That's scary. A horn honks. The truck engine turns over a few times, sputters, and starts. Will you write me? She asks, scrawling a Washington, D.C. address on a piece of paper napkin. I tear a scrap from the napkin and borrow her pen to return the gesture. I'll be in touch, she says. The horn honks again. We shake hands. Our fingertips slowly part. The truck lurches and disappears over the hill in a cloud of dust. The row home is easy with the wind and tide behind me. Alone in this far corner of heaven's desert, I cleat my dinghy's painter securely to the aft deck, climb aboard, and make some bread dough. I am by myself, but somehow I am not alone. While the bread rises, I compose a letter. Little Farmer's Key could pose in an exotic South Pacific postcard. Coconut palm trees lean from the sandy shore over rich turquoise water. After a half-day's run south from Staniel Key, I anchor in the racing tidal current I've become accustomed to and dinghy in to explore. A cave yawns at the water's edge, partially submerged at high tide. I wander in, 
stooping to fit beneath the ceiling. Bats flutter and squeak around me. I want to explore farther back, but I carry no flashlight with which to penetrate this curious world of perpetual shadow. I return to my dinghy and continue toward the dock. The word settlement suggests something tentative, some compromise that was settled on. Though families and neighbors may occupy such places for centuries, the word town, or even the more humble village, is an affront to the gods of storm and sea at whose whim they are lived in. Little Farmer's Settlement stands adjacent to the beach on the western shore. Its fifty inhabitants, all descended from Crisana, a freed slave who bought the island for thirty dollars in the 1800s, are friendly and welcoming. A Bahamian family invites me to sit on their wooden porch with them, to enjoy a rare luxury, a cold drink. I ask them about the fruits that grow here. The sapodilla trees are bearing fuzzy brown orbs the size of a plum. Given time to ripen, they taste a little like a sweet pear. Sugar apples on another tree look like a cross between a giant acorn and a hand grenade. The flesh around their seeds tastes like tart cinnamon applesauce. I call my father from the island's Patelco station. My stepmother tells me about her cousin in New York City, who wants to hire me based on what she's told him about my graphics skills. I can't imagine a place more different from Little Farmer's Key than Manhattan. I call Steve in New York and tell him I'll let him know. If you don't hear from me in a week, don't think I'm not interested. Assume I'm stuck waiting on weather somewhere with no phone available. Though I'd like to stay another day to explore the cave, the wind favors my southward course. At dawn, I continue on the inside passage, with the Exuma Keys between me and the ocean, negotiating shoals and rocks until I run aground on a mid-tide. I don't trouble myself to do anything more than set a single anchor in deeper water. The rising tide will eventually free me, but I will make no more progress today. Mare's tails streak the sky. A cold front is heading this way. The outboard still runs rough. I might as well try again to solve the problem while I wait out the weather. I consult the cruising guide for a place to spend the night. When I float clear of the bottom, I head back north about a mile to anchor in the lee of Cave Key. The island is rocky, desolate, and scrub-covered. The narrow entrance to its protected interior harbor runs between two rocky cliffs, but the guidebook tells me the channel is too shallow for Blue Monk. That theory holds true until another sailboat larger than mine passes me to disappear between the cliffs. I consider following them, but I already have two anchors down and I'm comfortable where I am. A half hour later, a middle-aged couple dinghies out to visit me. You might want to move, they suggest. A norther's coming down. You'll be a lot more comfortable inside when the wind picks up. But the entrance is too shallow. How much does your boat draw? Probably the same as yours, the man assures me. His wife smiles and nods agreement. There's plenty of water. Follow us in. I haul my anchors and motor slowly between rocky walls taller than my mast, following the strip of darker blue that indicates the narrow corridor of deep water in the center of the channel. Inside... I turn to port to anchor in a shallow lagoon over a seagrass bottom, surrounded by beaches and twisted rocks covered with scrub. 
A high hill stands between the lagoon and the ocean. Covered with cacti, the terrain is more of a desert than a tropical paradise. A fisherman's shack of driftwood and rough timber squats at the edge of the shallow lagoon. The norther arrives. The wind blows and the temperature drops. But inside the island's interior lagoon, the gale is barely noticeable. Hardly a ripple disturbs the water. Two days later, my neighbors move on. I remain in the sheltered anchorage at Cave Key, waiting for the north wind to surrender to the easterly trade winds. Though Georgetown would be an easy reach southward, the best route from here to there is through the deep water on the windward side of the islands. Alone and on no particular schedule, I have no reason to hurry. I prefer to do my blue water sailing in moderate weather. Two days later, when the wind abates, I motor out of the harbor. The outboard still sputters. Yet another carburetor overhaul did not solve the problem. But I can't stay alone at Cave Key forever. I push out from my sheltered world, emerging between the two cliffs onto the Bahama banks, my sails already hauled aloft to assist should the engine fail. I motor slowly around the south side of the key, aiming my bow out through the cut toward the blue Atlantic. The inbound current piles and surges against a rocky islet that stands in the middle of the channel, like a strange cubist sculpture defying the sea. The tide pushes me sideways as I fight my way off the edge of the banks. The rock appears to drift around me. Battling the current with my sails up and my engine revved as high as it will go, I push my way slowly toward deeper water. The outboard finally swallows whatever was choking its fuel system. When I need power most, the motor runs strong again. With renewed vigor, the propeller pushes me past Picasso's lost masterpiece out into the swells. I clear the cut. My sails fill. I turn south, but angle slightly east to put sea room between my vessel and the rocky coasts of the islands. I'm alone in the cobalt swells. When I pull the tiller, the whole earth obeys my command, swinging round me to align my destination with my path. The sun arcs slowly across the sky. I sit at the helm listening to the recordings I bought in NASA. Silhouettes of the southern islands of the Exuma chain sail by. I mark their progress in the guidebook. Late in the afternoon at Great Exuma Key, I pass back into the Bahama Banks. I follow the sketch chart in the book, using my compass monoculars to navigate around the reefs by taking bearings on landmarks ashore. I sail down a crystal bay into Elizabeth Harbor to drop my hooks in a crowded anchorage. My trip from Nassau to Georgetown has taken almost a month. The following morning, I dingy ashore to buy supplies. Georgetown is the remains of a slave settlement, abandoned along with its inhabitants to subsist off the land and whatever could be salvaged from shipwrecks when a cotton-growing venture went bust after the American Revolutionary War. Today, the descendants of those early castaways make a modest living from conking, fishing, and providing services to hundreds of yachtsmen who crowd their protected anchorages each winter. Georgetown is another settlement. Its wooden houses painted the pastel colors of the sand, sea, and sunset. Chickens roam the streets. Goats are tethered to trees and yards. 
Diesel generators grind constantly in the background. A few architecturally incongruous banks service transient yachtsmen and a growing community of Americans who build vacation homes on Great Exuma Key. I visit the payphone at the local Patelco station. Inside, someone has scrawled a graffito. Life's a reach, and then you jibe. Landing at Georgetown involves dingying from the anchorage to the dock via a tunnel under the main road. The current rushes either in or out, depending on whether the tide is filling or emptying saltwater Lake Elizabeth on the other side. For most cruisers, this is no problem. Engine-powered inflatable dinghies are unhindered by the rushing water. In Artemisia Gentileschi, my little soap-dish dinghy with unmatched oars, attaining the dock is a struggle. I catch an oar tip on the side of the narrow tunnel and find myself spinning and bumping back out. More than once, I fall back into someone else who entered behind me. To complicate matters, the popular Bahamian equivalent of Russian roulette involves blasting a 20-foot powerboat through the tunnel at high speed, under the blind assumption that nobody else is traversing it at the time. Stalking Island lies a mile across a small bay, offering protected hurricane anchorages and an unusual monolith perched on a high hill. I spend a few days exploring and hike to the top where the concrete salt beacon gazes upon a blue horizon. On the ocean side, the beach is inspiring. White ribbons of sand connect the sea to dramatic rock formations. But after a week in Georgetown, I've had my fill. Christmas is almost here. Yachts arrive for the holidays at the rate of a dozen per day. Georgetown rapidly becomes a social drinking station for retired yachtsmen twice my age who seem bored with paradise. We made some money. The kids moved out. We sold our house. We closed the business. We bought a boat. We made it to the islands. Now what do we do? I commend these sailors both for their financial success and for following their dreams to these southern latitudes. But their dreams aren't mine. Perhaps they never valued the wildness, risks, and challenges of the journey. Perhaps for them it was always about arriving, about conga lines and limbo contests and tropical drinks. These yachtsmen are here at the ends of their voyages. I am in the middle of mine. A gray Bahamian military launch cruises through the anchorage just before sundown, stopping at various boats. The boat eventually pulls alongside Blue Monk. Good evening, sir, says a uniformed man. The Bahamian Defense Force requests permission to board your vessel for a routine inspection. He points his machine gun down and off to the side. I consider whether or not the request is actually a request. Of course. Welcome aboard. I'll fetch my passport and ship's papers. The men look down from the cockpit through the companionway into my cabin, but don't step inside. One of them opens a cockpit locker, but doesn't pull out the sail bag that obscures his view of whatever's stowed behind it. Why bother to search if you're not going to look? I hold my tongue. I return to the cockpit with my documents. One of the soldiers scans them quickly, nods, and hands them back. You're sailing by yourself? asks one officer. Yes, sir. Where is your wife? I'm not married. Do you have a girlfriend? No girlfriend either. Just sailing by myself. The soldier looks confused. Are you gay? 
he inquires after a pause, looking at me with a sidelong stare. Just single. The soldiers take pity on me. Come to the hotel tonight, says their leader. I'll buy you a drink. Thank you, I say, attempting to sound grateful. That's kind of you. I'll try to get over there tonight. The officers step back aboard their launch and move on to the next boat. They searched for nothing. They found it. I had forgotten about that other world. I'm naively surprised and offended to encounter it here in this remote wilderness. At least they were friendly and polite, I tell myself, though I don't believe it. I reflect on my life alone on a tiny boat in a strange land. Perhaps the name painted on my hull had had unintended consequences. I, the rational pragmatist, the skeptic, the doubter, the questioner, the non-believer, and pursuing ideals that stand on invisible foundations. I wouldn't be living in the wilderness on a 26-foot sloop if I wasn't on a pilgrimage of some sort. By myself in this blue wilderness, I've honored a calling stronger than my human desire to be with others. I have never felt so empowered or free. These past five months, 500 miles from my home port, away from traffic and noise and bright lights, the real world I encountered here feels a lot more real than the real world I have always been exhorted to join. Yet I find this loneliness grows old, like watching a movie by myself. What about New York? The idea of living in a concrete jungle scares me far more than the idea of selling alone in a wild one. Perhaps that's reason enough to try? I step to the mast and raise the mainsail. I pull my anchors from the Georgetown bottom and sail away from the ever-expanding fleet of drinking yachtsmen, negotiating the passage between the reefs, filling my sails with clear, clean air from the great Atlantic. The trade winds blow from behind me. This is the downwind trip, said to make the climb south worthwhile. Offshore in the blue ocean swells, I watch the islands slip by my port side and look for landmarks that match those in the cruising guide. In the afternoon, the sky grows streaky. It's uncommon to get so many cold fronts this far south, but the wind favors me as the gale approaches, clocking slowly behind me. I duck into Cave Key as I did on my way down, passing Picasso's lost sculpture in the cut. Seen from the ocean side, it's an unremarkable rock. I enter between the two coral cliffs into the island's interior lagoon. Carrying a second anchor out in the dinghy, I set my hooks wide apart to minimize my drift as the wind changes, to keep my keel out of the shallows. The sky is white and hazy. The temperature falls into the fifties. I'm the only one here, but I'm comfortable and safe, sheltered by steep coral shores and sand beaches on all sides. Hardly a ripple violates the surface of the lagoon when the gale arrives. I read, bake bread, play music, read some more, play more music. After a day or two, or maybe three aboard, I explore the lagoon in the dinghy, and then land to investigate the scrub-covered island. I encounter one of the caves the island is named for. I'm tempted to climb inside, but think better of the idea. This would be no place to get injured or stuck. 
Who knows when someone else might visit here? When they do, will they question why my boat is empty and my dinghy is tied ashore? I row across to the other side of the lagoon, tie my dinghy to a small dock, and climb a dirt path through low scrub grass up a sandy hill. A few gnarled sea grape trees cling to the earth, but the land is open, barren, and dry. A tall sentry plant stretches its thorny arms next to the trail, thrusting its central stalk twelve feet skyward. Small cacti, prickly pear, and other varieties are oddly non-tropical. They're desert flora. I walk a short distance to stretch my legs. It's refreshing to be on land, but I feel like I'm trespassing. Technically, I am trespassing. A sign on the dock says this island is privately owned. Though the odds of anyone either caring or catching me are slim, being an unwanted guest sullies the experience. I head back to the boat to read, cook, practice guitar, and read some more. A second gale blows through. I've never spent an entire week alone before. The trade winds clock around to the southeast again. In the morning, I haul my anchors, start my motor, and exit between the cliffs. The chop is light in the lee of the islands. The wind is fair. The sea bottom is tide-swept sand, a submerged blanket of shifting turquoise and beige. I pass a few other boats, most of them headed south, but continue on alone across the sparkling wilderness. Without an autopilot, I am bound to my tiller, but with some adjusting of the sails, I can get Blue Monk to balance herself and stay on course for a few minutes at a time. I go below to make myself a sandwich with bread I baked at Cave Key. By early afternoon, I've sailed just over twenty-two miles, not far, but I find no reason to push myself. After more than four hours in the cockpit, with fair weather expected tomorrow, I'm happy to take a break, dropping anchor at Big Major's spot near Staniel Key for the night. Already, I have stories and memories attached to these islands. I consider rowing in to let my family in Miami know I'm alive, but I'm still dependent on my mismatched oars. I don't know what to tell Steve about the job in New York. The tide is running. That means a fight going one direction or the other. Better to sit tight. I am rewarded for staying aboard. From my anchorage off the sand beach near the island's westernmost point, I watch a wild pig come out of the trees to walk at the water's edge. At sunrise, I'm underway again, this time completing a 35-mile passage to Dove Key, where I stopped to visit Mike and Roy on my way south. The anchorage is pretty, a blue, seagrass-bottomed channel between two green islands, scoured deeper than the surrounding banks by the ever-racing tide. Mike's boat is gone. I'm alone here, too. The house is locked up. They must have sailed to Nassau for supplies. Still, this is a sheltered place to anchor. After sundown, the stars are magnificent, reflecting in the transparent water to reach my eyes alone. The vision is surreal, so much more vivid and vibrant than it rationally could be. In the most literal sense of the word, supernatural, as in transcending the merely natural, overloading the senses. This is a different world. Soon, I will only be able to see the brightest of these stars. Do I want to leave them behind? 
Will knowing they are here be enough? The next day's 22-mile passage to Allen's Key is easy. The temperature is mild, the wind moderate. I fly my big jib and round the rocks at the entrance to the island group's interior anchorage by early afternoon. I am once again the only boat in the anchorage. I moor blue monk over white sand, encircled by natural channels of sapphire blue, cut by swift currents flowing on and off the banks. Beyond these narrow channels, the islands are low, scrub-covered, and rimmed by sparkling beaches punctuated by gray outcroppings of sharp coral, moon rock. I row to the beach to call on the resident iguanas and stretch my legs. As on my first visit here, when I leave the dinghy, several of the four-foot lizards crawl from the underbrush looking for a handout. They keep a short distance from me, but remain watchful and unafraid. In the low jungle, I discover the ruins of a house. Not much remains, only a foundation and crumbling walls covered with crudely painted names of visiting yachts. The blue water and white sand are serenely inspiring here, but this is a place of wild beauty, no place that should be marred by the presence of blocky human habitation. Succulent vines consume a pile of cinder blocks at one side. A sea grape tree grows through a crack in the deteriorating concrete floor. Two iguanas crawl across the rubble. Nature reclaims her own. After my walk, I return to Blue Monk, cook dinner, and listen to ZNS radio from Nassau 40 miles away. The date is December 23rd. I'll be in Nassau for Christmas. The Nassau Weather Service predicts the wind will blow from the south. Perfect. With a long northwest passage across the yellow banks ahead of me tomorrow, I plan to get going early. Night falls on the home of the iguanas, the reflection of wispy gray clouds scudding swiftly over a brilliant moon dances on the water. Something isn't right. Did the ZNS weather forecaster bother to look up at this guy? December 24, 1989. I awaken before the sun. The night sky purples beyond the dark silhouette of the island to my east. I flip on the radio and listen to ZNS out of Nassau. Someone has died. A five-minute list of survivors. It must be half the population of the Bahamas follows the obituary. Today is the anniversary of the publication of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species. The announcer derides it as a book that proposes man descended from monkeys. Several more minutes of not even anthropologically interesting filler follows before the desired weather report is finally broadcast. NASA radio clears me for takeoff. A light rain falls. Humidity condenses out of the warm tropical air. The southerly wind suggests the approach of a cold front. I prepare to depart, but my gut tells me not to. I don't need a weatherman to tell me what these clouds mean. By sunrise, the wind increases, clocking around to the south-southwest. A powerful tidal current, rather than the wind, determines my vessel's orientation. I sit beam to the weather. Machine gun raindrops pelt my vessel's starboard side. Opposing winds and currents create a large, uncomfortable swell in the anchorage. If the wind blows from the north before the tide changes, 
I could end up riding stern to the blow. Not a comforting proposition. Alan's key is hardly the same peaceful anchorage I fell asleep in last night. I'd love to get out of here. Radio ZNS's disregard for accurate weather forecasting betrays NASA's long history as a seaport. I passed a protected harbor at Highburn Key yesterday and proceeded here with no advice about a coming front. This morning's early broadcast reported only southerly winds at 20 knots. It's already blowing 25 at Allen's Key. If this wind holds, I could enjoy ideal sailing conditions for a run north to New Providence. But the clouds are streaky. In these latitudes, winds from anywhere south of southeast foretell the influence of high-pressure air swooping down from the Arctic to overpower the Caribbean trade winds. In these latitudes, winds from anywhere south of southeast are capricious and unstable. I balanced nature's warnings against the lack of any broadcast by man. I listened to the radio one more time before pulling anchors. The forecast has changed. Winds are expected to be out of the north today at 20 to 30 knots with gusts to gale force. That's the forecast for NASA's protected harbor. Conditions here at Allen's Key will be worse. I let out scope on my windward anchor and then, with the dinghy and my unmatched oars, haul up and reset my second hook in the center of the island group. The soft sand will provide good holding ground. I wrestle a third anchor, a length of chain, and a strong line from a cockpit locker and install them on the foredeck, in case I need an emergency break. The rain pauses. Dark, streaky clouds scud across a white sky overhead. The wind diminishes. The ride becomes more comfortable. I enjoy the relative calm while it lasts. A gale can blow for days. And because of the strong tidal current streaming between the islands here, the guidebook warns Allen's Key can be extremely rough in a norther. I can handle rough, though staying aboard will be uncomfortable. I'm equipped with sturdy anchors and plenty of heavy chain. Good insurance, considering the ragged coral shores around me. Beyond the entrance channel downwind of me lies a sandy beach. If I should break loose or drag anchor... Its soft sand will be my target landing spot. The iguanas here, or perhaps some other swarm of unseen inhabitants, have a malevolent laugh. The noise began after midnight last night when the wind first came up and the temperature fell. A raspy, demonic cackle, straight out of a horror film, resounding across the island from a chorus of hysterical devils. The wind's clock southwest. The sky fades to a uniform gray. The air is cold. A tide-driven swell surges through the turbulent anchorage. Held beam to the waves by the wind, Blue Monk rolls nauseatingly. After a few hours, the tide slackens. The boat rides bow to the wind again. I prepare lunch. Eating my sandwich, I calmly and helplessly await the approaching tempest. Experiencing a strange mix of fear, anticipation, resignation, and boredom. My boat is prepared. My anchors are set. My sails are lashed down. My oars are lashed to the cabin top. Negligence is no part of this equation. Whatever will happen is up to forces beyond my control. 
I consider running south four miles to better shelter at Highburn Key. But at low tide, I'm not sure I can carry my four-foot-six draft over the sandbar at the entrance. Today would not be a good day to get stuck aground. I call Highburn Harbor on the VHF, but get no response. Best to sit tight. Though the word gale conjures up images of crashing waves and wind-driven spray, I've sailed in 30-knot winds before. The technical definition of gale force specifies wind of over 34 knots, a significant but hardly awe-inspiring wind speed, and I should be at least somewhat protected in the lee of the islands. A fine line divides disregarding the strength of nature's fury and taking a storm too seriously. I'm just not sure where that line is. With time to wait, the impending gale looms larger. By late afternoon, the wind backs to the west. Unusual. The rolling swell in the anchorage returns with the tide. The island demons are at it again, cackling in the cold rain. Daylight fades. A last-minute boat, coconut, arrives in the anchorage ahead of a line of dark, low, ugly clouds and even harder rain. They must have had a bumpy day sailing across the banks. The latest radio update says the gale will arrive tonight. Had I known I had this much time, I would have tried to make Highburn Key. But at this point, I'm staying put. In better weather, I'd rather be here than in Nassau's crowded industrial harbor for Christmas, Outside, the night is cold and wet. I'm grateful for my guitar, my stereo, my books, and my warm, dry cabin. By ten o'clock, the wind howls under a cold, dark, starless, moonless sky. The gale turns northwest, blowing across rather than between the islands. I have better protection in their lee now, but the current and the roaring air fight savagely over my tiny vessel. She tacks awkwardly on her anchor lines. Accustomed to riding bow to the wind, my instincts respond to the feel of the boat, telling me I'm dragging anchor when I'm not. Mooring lines creak, stretch, and strain, stays in halyards hum. Rain pressure cleans my hull and deck. Sleep is impossible. Midnight on Christmas Eve. The howling wind is demoralizing. I turn up the volume on the stereo, but find it difficult to summon up a festive holiday spirit. At 3.30 in the morning, the rain pauses. I grab a flashlight, braving the dark in the wind to inspect my foredeck. I'm hanging on one anchor. I haul in slack on the other so it can share the strain. No chafe on any of the lines. Good. Upwind of me on coconut. My neighbor is on deck for the same reason. He waves at me in the loom of his spotlight. The night is so dark. I can hardly see the islands, but judging by the position of his light relative to mine, we're both in the same places we originally anchored. At certain wind speeds, my halyards vibrate at a low frequency. The mast, a hollow aluminum tube, vibrates sympathetically, causing the entire boat to moan and pump dramatically. I don my foul weather gear and adjust the tension on the halyards to calm the music. When the wind finds a new note to play, I adjust them again. An hour later, it gets really bouncy. I'm caught between wind and tide again, 
My oven flies from the galley, almost landing in my bunk. The current holds my stern 45 degrees off the wind. Waves attempt to board my cockpit. They explode against my transom. Each chilling gust heals me 30 degrees. Enough of this already. What am I doing alone on a tiny boat, getting knocked around in a remote, wet, freezing wilderness? Am I crazy? This is paradise? Night's blackness succumbs to dawn. I venture again to the foredeck and find everything in order. The anchors hold tight. The lines haven't chafed. But my astonishment at witnessing the spectacle around me transcends all fear of being in the middle of it. A gale does in fact involve crashing waves and wind-driven spray. Wave tops fly off in streaming streaks of spindrift. Sheets of mist blast over Allen's Key's highest hill, the fleeing ghosts of waves detonated against the windward side of the islands, as if a fire hose is trained on it. The island that sits between me and the north wind appears to be covered with rising steam. The cut, once clear and transparent aquamarine, is a seething cauldron of furious green water and stirred-up sand. Waves driven from the shallow banks boil through the entrance, undulating madly without consistent direction, spitting foam and hissing invective. Yet, in spite of the cold and the uncomfortable motion, the sinister laughing of the iguanas, the vibrating groans of the rigging, and the ominous creaking of the anchor lines, my life is richer for having experienced nature's power from within. A voice on the VHF, a yachtsman sheltering at Highburn Key, announces the wind is expected to calm somewhat by nightfall. By afternoon, the wind passes through north, still blowing, but less forcefully. Comfortable would be an exaggeration, but I welcome any lessening of the storm. Tentative spots of blue peek through gray cotton skies. Nightfall on Christmas Day. The wind blows steady and cold, but conditions are lighter. After staying awake for almost 48 hours, I sleep well. In the morning, the harbor remains rolly as the gale opposes the tide. My hatches are shut tight against the cold. Tomorrow, I'll make my run to Nassau. I've spent enough time by myself these past few weeks. I'm ready for some company and a change of scenery. My neighbors on Coconut hail me on the VHF radio to invite me over for a Christmas Day lunch. A kind gesture. They have a big boat, hot tea, and a warm meal to share. I'm grateful for the hospitality and for the company of others who can recount this unimaginable experience. We are creatures of the story. When we encounter the remarkable, we find solace in knowing others have seen it, too. In some small way, nobody else will ever quite understand who we are. We are bound together by common experience. Long after dark, I thank my new friends for an enjoyable day of commiseration and row back to Blue Monk. The wind has subsided to fifteen knots. The sky is starry and clear. A brilliant moon illuminates the white sand bottom of the anchorage. The only sound worthy of mention is that of the wave gently lapping against my hull. It isn't so bad here. Tomorrow, I leave the Lizard Kingdom to cross the Yellow Banks to Nassau. I retire and sleep the deep, satisfied sleep 
of one who anticipates a day under the Bahamian sun, navigating the clear waters of paradise. Still awake? If you'd like to hear more of The Blue Monk, just search Audible or iTunes or Amazon for the Kindle and print editions. I'll put links in the episode description. And again, please follow, subscribe, give five stars, or let me know in any way that you enjoyed your trip.